Wednesday, October 3rd, 2012, episode 19 of the Football Nation Today podcast with Alex Reamer on footballnation.com. It feels a little strange hosting a show, episode 19 of Football Nation Today, here on footballnation.com, without dedicating a large majority of it to ranting and raving about the replacement officials. (laughs) I would like to take at least partial credit, or maybe more realistically, minimal credit, but credit nonetheless, for expediting the negotiating process between the NFL owners and NFL referees. Last week on the show, of course, we spent a lot of time ranting and raving, complaining, all of that stuff regarding the replacement officials, the abomination that was the Seattle-Green Bay game last Monday night, and really the total week three in the NFL falling in atrocious week two. If you scream loud enough, folks, people will listen. So I am, yes, taking at least a little bit of credit, a smidgen of credit, for expediting the negotiating process between the NFL owners and NFL referees. Oh, please, let me, let me have my moment. Let me boost my ego. But as I said, feels a little strange hosting a show and not dedicating it to the replacement officials. We will have a little referee talk in the second down segment where, where of course, we talk about the biggest off-field NFL story of the past week, which undoubtedly was the NFL and NFL referees coming to an agreement. I think it's only fair we spent a lot of time talking about the replacement officials to follow up the story and talk about the deal made between the NFL owners and their real referees and how, hey, I'm no business major. I'm a broadcast journalism major here at BU. Arguably the furthest thing from a business major, but I can tell you, uh, in business, you always got away the risk and reward, and I don't think the NFL owners really did a good job of that. And the deal they reached with the referees is uh, makes it quite clear that the risk here uh, was certainly not worth the reward that they received. So we'll talk about that in the second down segment. But in the first down segment, coming up momentarily, it's our quarter NFL season review. That's right. Four weeks in the season are done. Each team plays 16 games. I know there are 17 weeks technically, but each team plays 16 games. So that means we are roughly at the quarter mark of the season. The calendar has turned to October. Time for the season second month. Coming up in the first down segment, I'll tell you five things we've seen thus far that are for real and five things that aren't for real. Now, in segments like this, I'm going to stand out on an island on some things. I'll probably be wrong about a lot of what I say in future weeks, but as always, this show is meant to generate conversation, generate uh, generate some discourse, as they say. So that's what we'll do in the first down segment. In the third down segment today as well, it's our big up slowdown, talking about a couple of topics, including Sean Payton possibly attending the Hall of Fame game this week. He says he doesn't plan on asking to attend, but Drew Brees wants him to. Should Sean Payton be at that game? We'll talk about that. We'll also, of course, talk about the New York Jets. Shut out 34 to zip by the 49ers this past week in New York. Ouch! Is it Tebow time? Is it time to panic? I have an answer that may surprise you. And then, as always, we're wrapping up the show in the fourth down segment with the Reamer rant. This week, I'm going to go off an article I read on FootballNation.com, a writer by the name of Patrick Garrity 
I wrote a very interesting piece about the NFL being at a crossroads and how the NFL experience today in 2012 pales in comparison into what it was when he first became a football fan in the late 1990s. So I will talk about Patrick's piece and uh, some agreements and disagreements I have with that as well in the fourth down segment. But before we get started with the meat and potatoes of the show, I do want to send my regards to Indianapolis Colts head coach Chuck Pagano and members of his family. Pagano, of course, is receiving some leukemia treatments. He is out for the time being. Bruce Arians will be the interim head coach of the Indianapolis Colts in Pagano's absence. But I do want to at least uh, send some well wishes over to Chuck Pagano and his family. I definitely don't like to hear that. And we hope for a, uh, for a quick, swift, and uh, strong recovery for Chuck Pagano. And we hope to see him on the Indianapolis sidelines in just a couple of short weeks. Football Nation Today, episode 19 on footballnation.com. We'll be right back with the first down segment. Don't go anywhere. So as I said in the opening, the quarter mark of the NFL season is just about here, or at the very least, if you want to be particular about it, the first month has now passed. We're into the second month of the NFL season. Every team besides the Pittsburgh Steelers and Indianapolis Colts have played four games. So, five things we've seen through the NFL's first month, through roughly the quarter mark of the season, that are for real, and five things we've seen that are not for real. Let's start off with the five things we've seen that are for real. And as I also said in the opening, I'm going to stand on an island a bit on some of these topics. But this show, of course, is always meant to generate discussion amongst you folks, listeners. Get your brains turn, churning a little bit. Or at least give you somebody to yell out while you're sitting at work. Um, <laughs> five things that are for real through the first four weeks of the 2012 NFL regular season. Now, that's the key here. Regular season because the number one thing that is for real is that the Atlanta Falcons are this good and will run away with the NFC South. The Falcons are 4-0, the Buccaneers and Panthers are 1-3, and the Saints, of course, are still winless at 0-4. The Falcons are undoubtedly the most complete team in the division, and arguably right now in the regular season, the most complete team in the conference. And I keep saying regular season, I keep adding that caveat. I'll explain why in a, while, in a, in a minute. Um, but as far as the first four games... Matt Ryan has appeared to ascend to the next level as a quarterback as he led the Falcons on a game-winning drive on Sunday from their own one-yard line. Uh, Roddy White caught two big touchdown passes last week for Atlanta, uh, caught a big throw as well from Ryan from the one-yard line all the way into Carolina territory. Uh, each week, Ryan can switch off between Roddy White, Julio Jones, two big deep threats. They also have Tony Gonzalez, who's having a terrific season at tight end. Michael Turner at his first 100-plus rushing game of the season on Sunday as well. Uh, the Falcons offensively really seem to be a complete team, and they have the ingredients to be successful on defense. They are battling some injuries in the secondary. Brent Grimes, of course, is out, but they acquired Asante Samuel in the offseason. They're getting good secondary play thus far, and they have the guys up front who can make plays in particular, John Abraham is having a great start to the season. Uh, that's a key in the NFL, of course. If you can have a front seven or even one specific guy like the Falcons do in Abraham who can consistently get some pressure on the opposing quarterback, and through the first four weeks at least, Abraham is living up to that billing. Uh, but I kept providing the caveat regular season because Matt Ryan, of course, is 0-3 in his career in the postseason, and I'm of the belief you got to show me you can do it. you got to show me you can do it, kid. And Matty Ryan 
has not showed me he can do it on a big stage. Now, yes, the Falcons have a new offensive coordinator this season. They've opened up their offense quite a bit with Roddy White and Julio Jones down the field. Uh, they're playing defense a little more aggressively as well. I understand it's a different year, and thus far it seems to be a much different Falcons team, at least from the way they're playing. But it's still a wait-and-see thing for me once the Falcons reach the postseason, but they will undoubtedly reach the postseason. They will undoubtedly have a first-round bye in the postseason, and hell, they may even have home field advantage throughout the postseason. The Atlanta Falcons are showing to be that good through the first four weeks of the season. They're 4-0. They're going to run away with their division if they haven't already done so. The Houston Texans are the best team in the AFC. Like the Falcons, they're 4-0. And like the Falcons, are going to run away with their division in the AFC South. They don't seem to have any immediate challengers. Uh, but unlike the Falcons, I'm not going to add any caveats here. I think the Texans will be just as dangerous a team in the postseason as they are right now in the regular season. Of course, providing health, that's always the X factor. But, I mean, you look at their roster, they are, I think, the most complete team in the entire league. Uh, the defense from the front seven to the secondary, Jonathan Joseph, I think he's a terrific cornerback. That was a great offseason acquisition the Texans made, getting Joseph, providing some real uh, some real solidity to that secondary and that cornerbacking unit. Uh, if you look at the guys up front, they lost Mario Williams, but J.J. Watt, Brian Cushing, Brooks Reed has emerged. Uh, Antonio Smith is still around at defensive end. He's a guy who can make plays in special packages when called upon. Uh, the Texans play a real aggressive brand of defense, a defense that can make plays, a defense that forces turnovers, and the offense is prolific, to say the very least. Uh, Matt Schaub, a quarterback, on his way to a good statistical season, a great statistical season. Uh, Andre Johnson, one of the best receivers in football, and the Texans, of course, have the elite running game with Arian Foster and Ben Tate as well. Uh, they're the most complete team in the AFC. I think right now they're the most complete team in football. Uh, the Texans are most certainly for real, and they are most certainly the best team in the AFC. What's also for real has is uh, Peyton Manning's performance in Denver's two wins this season. The Broncos are 500-2-2, but Peyton Manning has a 120 QB rating in Denver's two wins. Now, granted, last week the win came against Oakland, and the Raiders are the Raiders, but... Still, you can't argue with that. Peyton Manning has looked spectacular in the Broncos' two wins. And you also have to remember, this is a bit of a transition, a transition process for Manning and the Broncos. They're implementing an entirely new offense. Peyton Manning has never played with most of those guys before, especially the receivers. The tight ends he has, Tammy, he's played with. But the receivers, Demarius Thomas, Eric Decker... He's never played with those guys before. He's never played under John Fox. He's never played in he's never played in this kind of system. He's adapting to the Broncos. The Broncos are adapting to him. They've only played four games. It's a bit of a transition process. And Manning has looked so good in Denver's two wins. You have to think he's back. Or at least 80 to 85% of his former self. And as I said all offseason long on the show. If Peyton Manning is 80 to 85% of his former self, that is more than enough for the Broncos to win and challenge for the AFC West title. Uh, a big test this week, Manning and the Broncos travel to Foxborough to take on the Patriots. Manning has struggled in his career in Foxborough. I believe he only has two career victories in Foxborough, but 
He's carved up the Patriots in recent meetings. And the Patriots this season have shown, especially two weeks ago against Baltimore, that they still have a subpar pass defense. So it will be very interesting to see how Peyton Manning performs against the Patriots defense this week in Foxborough, a place where he has not had a lot of success historically. But over the past couple years, he's had a lot of success against the Patriots and their mediocre or subpar pass defense. I'm still not sold on the Patriots' pass defense. I still think it's rather subpar, especially coming off that performance two weeks ago at Baltimore. So, big test for the Broncos. Big test for Peyton Manning this week at New England. But Manning has performed so well in the Broncos' two wins, quarterback rating well north of 100 in both of those wins. Um... I think he's back, or at the least, pretty close to it, 80 to 85%. The deep ball still a little more wobbly than it once was. But again, an 85% Peyton Manning gives the Broncos more, a, more than, a more than good enough chance to seriously challenge for that AFC West title. Speaking of the Patriots, they're currently 2-2 two and, two and tied atop the AFC East with the New York Jets. But folks, that will not last. The Patriots' performance against Buffalo this week was for real from a couple of standpoints. Number one, the Bills are a complete joke. Uh, they were outscored 45-7 to in the second half. They did have a 21-7 to lead over the Patriots entering the uh, af uh, in, in the third quarter. They scored in the first possession in the third quarter at a 14-7 to lead at half. But you look back at the way that first half transpired. Uh, the Patriots fumbled the ball twice. Rob Gronkowski, Wes Welker fumbled twice. Steven Guskowski, the kicker, missed two field goals. Uh, Buffalo turned it over a couple times. The Patriots couldn't capitalize on those turnovers. Uh, the Patriots were in control of that game from start to finish. And in the first half, they just left a lot of points on the field. In the second half, they didn't leave any points on the field. As I mentioned, outscored Buffalo 45-7. to uh, Steven Ridley, Brandon Bolden, the running backs, both had 100-plus yards running. Tom Brady had a big game as well. And even more impressively for the Patriots, the offensive line with Logan Mankins out of action. Donald Thomas, who struggled so mightily earlier in the season on the right side of the line, slid over to left guard in Mankins' place and performed quite well. Uh, the Bills couldn't generate any pass rush on Brady, and that's really concerning if you're a Bills fan because they gave Mario Williams the biggest contract to a defensive player in the history of football. They acquired Williams, acquired Mark Anderson, uh, solely for the purpose of rushing the quarterback, rushing Tom Brady, their personnel moves the past couple years, this offseason in particular, seem to be aimed at making a legitimate run at the Patriots, and they just fell short in a multitude of ways Sunday night, uh, Sunday afternoon in Buffalo. And, you know, I think the Patriots' performance against them is a harbinger of things to come for the Patriots' performance performances against the other AFC East teams. Uh, I think they blow, they'll blow doors on Miami. They're a much better team than the 2-2 two two New York Jets. Um, I don't think the Patriots are as dominant as I and some others thought they would be coming into the season. As I said earlier, I think their secondary still has a lot of problems. I think their defense in general still is, um, the jury is still out on that. Um, and, you know, I think offensively under Josh McDaniels, they've been going through a bit of a transitional period as well. Um, but they crushed the Bills on Sunday afternoon. And yes, the Patriots are tied atop the East with the Jets. Both teams are at 2-2, two and two, but as I said... I think the Patriots' domination of the Bills on Sunday night is a har and Sunday afternoon is a harbinger of things to come. 
that performance is for real in the context of the Patriots against the rest of the AFC East. Uh, they remain the class of that division and should win that division rather easily yet again this season. Now, conversely, on the other side of the coin, the Cowboys' performance on Monday night, the whopping the Bears gave them in Dallas, uh, may be a sign of things to come for them. The Cowboys are 2-2, two and two, and yes, that's for real. They are a 500 football team. Tony Romo is a career 500 quarterback. You are what you are. And that's what the Cowboys are. It's roughly what Tony Romo is. A 500 team, a 500 quarterback. Des Bryant made some big plays on Monday night, but also a lot of, left a lot of big plays on the field too. Um, go back to how him and Romo, not on the same page with a fade route, resulted in an easy Chicago Bears interception. I believe uh, Tillman in the secondary came out with that interception for the Bears. Uh, it's almost inexcusable, quite frankly, for Tony Romo to not be on the same page, and in a lot of cases, not even uh, being close to being on the same page, with arguably his number one wideout, almost certainly his most prolific wideout, Des Bryant, entering week five of the season. You had all offseason, all training camp, four games this season, and to see that performance on Monday night... Bryant and Romo not on the same page with some fade patterns, some easy in and out patterns. I mean, come on. That's almost inexcusable. In fact, it is inexcusable. It really is. And look at that Cowboys team on paper. Look at how well they performed in week one against New York. And you say, what's missing there? You know, on defense, what's missing? Although, hey, the defense was hardly on the field. <laughs> on Monday night, it was the Bears defense that was their offense. But, you know... I know Jason Garrett just came on. This will be only be his second full season as coach over there. But if you're Jerry Jones, what are you thinking? You have this beautiful new stadium. And Monday night it was filled with Bears fans, especially in the second half as all the Cowboys fans went home. Uh, it was almost embarrassing to watch. In fact, scratch that. Enough with these. Uh, enough with, no, it was embarrassing to watch Monday night. It was frankly sad to watch. What a pathetic performance. Monday Night Football, the most watched game of the week, prime time, ESPN. And you're going to lay an egg like that against the Bears? And Tony Romo's going to throw five interceptions? And him and Des Bryant aren't going to be on the same page? And, I mean, come on. And Jay Cutler is going to slice you up and down the field? Not going to get consistent pressure on Cutler? Just a wretched performance. And it looks like it'll be another mediocre season for the Cowboys. They're 2-2. Two and two. You are what your record says you are. That's what they were last season, 500. And that's what they'll be again this season. All right, five things that we've seen through the first four weeks of the NFL that aren't for real. Wrapping this up here. The Cardinals are not the best team in the NFC West. They're currently 4-0, but they beat Miami at home last week in overtime. It took them until overtime to stop Ryan Tannehill in the potent Miami Dolphins offensive attack with Reggie Bush not at 100%. The 49ers are at 3-1. They're still the class of that division. The Cardinals' defense is legit. They've shown me a lot. Their win week two at New England was as legitimate a victory as there is in the regular season. Uh, but I still really worry about that quarterback situation. Kevin Cobb down the stretch just isn't going to do it for me. He won't do it. The 49ers are the class of that division. Uh, the Cardinals are not the best team in the NFC West. Though right now, after one month, their record says they are. Uh, speaking of which, the Vikings are 3-1. They're tied with the Bears atop the NFC North. And the Vikings will not be above 500 for long. Uh, they beat Detroit this week. 
after receiving two scores on special teams, a punt return for a touchdown, a kick return for a touchdown. They didn't accumulate 200 yards of total offense. Uh, that is the definition of a fluke victory. The Minnesota Vikings is a nice story. They beat San Francisco two weeks ago. That's a legitimate victory, but a real fluky win this week against last week against Detroit. Um, the Vikings will not be above 500 for long. Though Adrian Peterson is off to a great start, and I think that's a terrific story. Uh, and you look at the NFC North as a whole real quick, I don't think it's as good as we thought it was going to be heading into the season. Detroit is sub-500, and they've struggled mightily, especially on defense. Um, very inconsistent play from them. And the Packers, too. They escaped with the win against New Orleans. They're back at 500 at 2-2, two two, but... This is becoming a trend with the Green Bay Packers. They play stupid football. M.D. Jennings two weeks ago. It was a horrible call. No doubt about it. But as I said last week on the show, he should have batted that ball down. Trying to come up with the interception in that situation. Hail Mary last second in the end zone. It's a stupid football play. Everybody will tell you that. you got to bat that down. You don't go with the interception. Too much crap can potentially happen, as we saw. And then you go to the game last Sunday. Aaron Rodgers is taken out for a play. Backup QB Graham Harrell is inserted in, in the red zone. All Harrell has to do is hand the ball off cleanly to the running back. Can't do that. He fumbles the snap. He drops the snap. Saints recover. Next play, Drew Brees to Joe Morgan. Touchdown, Saints. Can't be making mistakes like that in the red zone. And then, Saints lining up for the game-winning field goal. They're a stupid team themselves, especially without Sean Payton. They're the epitome of an undisciplined football team right now. Have no idea what they're doing in critical situations. Uh, so they commit a penalty, back themselves up. But then the Packers get charged with encroachment. Essentially nullifies the previous New Orleans penalty. Now luckily for the Packers, Garrett Hartley missed the game-winning uh, kick. But still, you can't make mistakes like that. And the Packers, this is a trend for them. They're the perfect example of a team that's well-coordinated, but not necessarily well-coached. Mike McCarthy is a great offensive coordinator. Dom Capers is a good defensive coordinator, but they just don't put it all together all the time in critical situations. They're well-coordinated, good game plans, but not necessarily well-coached. There's a difference between the two, and the Packers embody that. The Steelers are currently 1-2, but they won't be for long. According to head coach Mike Tomlin, as of this recording, both Troy Palomalu and James Harrison will play this week for Pittsburgh. And with Palomalu and Harrison in the lineup and a healthy defensive unit, the Steelers will be better than a sub-500 team. They will challenge Baltimore and Cincinnati for the AFC North. Both of those teams, of course, are 3-1 the first four weeks so that looks to be a terrific race once again and what also isn't for real is the early season dominance of the San Diego Chargers they are three and one but will blow it down the stretch they almost uh universally do so under coach Norv Turner as I said earlier I think Peyton Manning's performances in Denver's two wins are for real I think the Broncos eventually will be the class of that division uh, I just don't have any faith in the Chargers in December. I really don't. Uh, this is so Chargers. Get off to a 3-1 start. Get everyone excited. And then fall on their faces down the stretch. And the thing about the Chargers is the mantra, whoa, they have Super Bowl caliber talent. They just need to put it together. Um, isn't really true. Take a look at that defense, folks. So that roster is not what it was three to four years ago. It isn't. The roster is not that good anymore, quite frankly. Uh, they've lost a lot of weapons on offense, too. Vincent Jackson is no longer there. Darren Sproles, of course, isn't there. They've been out Turner for a long time. Legadu Nene, even, is now in Miami. Um, that's a team that has a 
pretty... The roster's not as good as you think. I'll leave it at that. Take a look at the Chargers roster. Uh, that cliche, oh, the Chargers have a Super Bowl caliber roster. They just need better coaching. Uh, isn't necessarily true because they don't have a Super Bowl caliber roster anymore. And they certainly don't have the coaching. So the Chargers are 3-1, and one, but that's not for real. Uh, it's so Chargers. Get off to a good start in September. Then fall as the weather gets colder. And uh, even in San Diego gets a little colder. Uh, but really, no. that That is so Chargers. They... They will fall. Mark my words. Time for our uh, time for oh, and one more, one fourteen, one more, one more thing that isn't for real. I apologize. We have to do five here. The Philadelphia Eagles had a big win Sunday night against the Giants. They are now three and one, but they still don't have me sold. Uh, if Lawrence Times makes that kick, or Tom Coughlin handles the game well down the stretch, Giants come out that victory in Philadelphia Sunday night. But it's a big win for the Eagles. I won't take anything away from them. Um, their first real legitimate win of the victory as far as I'm concerned, but the Giants are the best team in that division. The way Eli Manning can carve up a team in the second half definitely would scare me if I were the Eagles or any other team in that division. And again, you talk about a team that makes stupid mistakes down the stretch. Two big pass interference calls on Philly in the final drive. Rasmus Barton on the, for the Giants got the offensive pass interference and luckily bailed the Eagles out. But yeah, those were questionable calls, but... Y y you can't make dumb mistakes like that. The Philadelphia Eagles continually make dumb mistakes like that. Mike Vick had a nice game on Sunday night, handled the Giants' pressure well. The offensive line, thank God, right, if you're an Eagles fan, actually performed competently. But I just don't have a lot of faith in the Eagles. I think they're a dumb football team. I think they manage the critical situations poorly. They almost blew it Sunday night with the two-pass interference calls. And luckily for them, Rasmus Barden, young receiver for the Giants, got called for his offensive pass interference, which put the Giants back. Um, good win for the Eagles. Won't take anything away from them. But at 3-1, and one, they still don't have me sold because they could just as easily be 1-3. Now moving on to our second down segment, the biggest off-field NFL story of the week. Of course, is the news. The real referees in NFL came to an agreement last week. Uh, last Wednesday, referees were back on the field for last Thursday night's matchup between the Browns and Ravens. Um, and there was a big difference in watching the games this weekend. Yep, the real referees blew some calls on the field, but a lot of those guys haven't called an NFL football game since last December or early January. They've got to expect there to be some rust. Uh, and the biggest thing to me is the games ran much more smoothly. Look, nobody is saying that the real referees make perfect calls. No one is saying that. Um, but what we are saying and what I've been saying is the real referees know how to run a game. And that was so apparent to me over the weekend. The games ran much more smoothly. Loose balls didn't turn into five 10-minute scrums. There wasn't mass confusion over what plays are reviewable and non-reviewable. The real referees know how to run a game. They know how to spot the ball. They know the rules. They have the respect to the coaches. They have the respect to the players. The games ran much more smoothly. They were not four-hour marathons. So that's the biggest thing to me from the real referees being back this week and just how much more smoothly and, frankly, cleanly the games were run. Now, as far as the deal, here's the particulars that you need to know. The NFL will hire officials on a full-time basis in 2013. They will begin to do that. The NFL will also have a taxi squad of officials, top Division I referees in college, who they can use to replace the NFL referees if their performance is poor. Now, retirement benefits. Those are the wins, I guess, if you want to call it that, for the NFL. But here's the retirement benefits, the crux of the issue. Retirement benefits will be provided for new hires 
and for all officials in 2017 through a defined contribution arrangement. The annual league contribution made on behalf of each official will begin with $18,000 per official and increase to more than $23,000 per team in 2019. But to make up for the uh, to make up for that, salaries will increase for the officials from an average of 149,000 in 2011 to 173,000 in 2013 to 205,000 in 2019. So yes, the pension contributions with this new deal have decreased, but the salaries have shot through the roof. 149,000 in 2011 to an average salary of 173,000 in 2013 to north of 200,000 in 2019. So ultimately, through all of this, the owners, at best, saved a couple thousand dollars on a pension fund. That's what this was about. Multi-billionaires in a nine-plus billion-dollar industry, the NFL, saving a couple thousand dollars on referee pension funds. And they didn't even really save that much. Because, yes, the pension contributions go down to an extent, but the salaries go through the roof. I'm no business major. I'm a horrible math student. I'm not, I don't have a firm grasp of economics. I put that on the table. But I have a firm enough grasp to tell you that in business, you always have to look at the risk and the reward. And the risk was not worth the reward here. Not in the least. The NFL was turned into a laughingstock for three weeks. All for the name of these owners saving a couple thousand dollars on referee pension funds. And fans should never forget how they were taken for granted in that time period. Never forget it, folks. People out there saying, oh, well, in two weeks, no one even remember the replacement officials there. Well, I hope that's not the case. I hope that's not the case. You, as a fan listening right now to the show, should never forget how you were taken for granted in the first three weeks of this NFL season. You were treated like a drug addict. Your fandom was taken for granted. The NFL was your dealer. You were the drug addict. And they, as the dealer, felt um, the power to supply you with whatever they deemed. And they supplied you with a subpar, and frankly, in a lot of instances, a crappy-ass product for three long weeks. Why? Because they take you for granted. They take your fandom for granted. They take your interest in the league for granted. And they did it all to save a couple grand on a referee pension fund. Never forget. Third down segment, it's the Big Up Slowdown, starting off with our first question this week. Drew Brees will reportedly ask Sean Payton to attend the Hall of Fame game against San Diego this week. Payton Noah said he doesn't plan on asking to attend. Big Up or Slowdown, should Sean Payton be there for this special game? Uh, I say slow down. Slow down here. Sean Payton ran a dirty operation and should be punished for it. I'm sorry, I have minimal to no sympathy for Sean Payton or anybody else involved in this bounty gate situation because it's bordering on immortal it's bordering on uh it's bordering on being immoral to me. 
It really is. And I rarely, if ever, get on my moral high horse, but in this situation, I have and will continue to do so. Especially with all of the studies that have come out over the past number of years. Dealing with the severity of concussions in the NFL. And how concussions affect players going forward. And all of those re and all of that research now at our disposal. And the New Orleans Saints as recently as a couple of seasons ago ran a bounty operation. Where they would purposely try to injure and go for the heads of opposing players. Think about that. Put that in context. And Sean Payton, as head coach of the team, has to bear full responsibility for the bounty gate. He does. He absolutely does. Sean Payton ran a dirty operation. He's serving his rightful punishment for running a dirty operation, a year-long suspension from the league. And the Saints are 0-4. They're poorly coached. They're poorly coached in critical situations. The defense hasn't improved. And I'm happy for it. I am. The Saints deserve all they have coming to them. They ran a dirty operation. Sean Payton ran a dirty operation. Blatantly tried to injure other players on other teams. Slow down. Sean Payton should not be at the Hall of Fame game. He should sit out from the NFL for a year. Not be seen in an NFL stadium for the season. That's the punishment. And that's what the punishment should be. No, Sean Payton should not be there. He does not have to be there. He's serving a punishment. The New York Jets were shut out by 30-plus points by the San Francisco Niners this week in New York. All hell is breaking loose in the Meadowlands. It is Tebow time. This is all warranted. All hell should be breaking loose. It is time to panic for the Jets. This 2-2 two two start is so unexpected. Heads should roll. Big up or slow down. Here's my surprising answer. Slow down. Slow down. Yep, the Jets are 500, but their two losses came at Pittsburgh and against San Francisco. Those are losses at the beginning of the season any rational football fan would have expected the Jets to have. Now they're playing Houston on Monday night and will likely go to 2-3. and three. But even so, the Texans are a better team than the Jets. That loss should be expected. Especially because right now the Jets don't have the players. It was a thin roster to begin with, and it's even thinner now. With Darrell Rivas out for the season, Santonio Holmes out for the next couple of weeks. If not the next number of weeks. The Jets are frankly a mediocre football team. Especially without Rivas and San Antonio Holmes. Why is it surprising that they're 2-2 two and, two and lost at Pittsburgh and to, France, to San Francisco? And if they lose next Monday night against Houston and become 2-3, and three, there should not be mass outrage either. The Texans are a better team, a much better team in fact, than the New York Jets, especially with all the injuries the Jets are currently dealing with. They're a mediocre football team. Mediocre football teams lose to good football teams. The 500 record should not be some... So should not be should not come as a major surprise. I'm not sure why it is. And you know all the conversation. Sanchez versus Tebow begs the question: Why did the Jets acquire Tebow again? Why? Tebow reportedly voiced some of his displeasure with the way he's being used. That's un-Tebow-like. But what's also un-Tebow-like is the Jets having him on their roster and not utilizing his skills. They're not using him in special packages. So all his presence is doing is causing the biggest quarterback controversy in the history of the recent sport. 
in the recent history of the sport, I should say. I mean, yeah, Sanchez has performed poorly, especially in Week Four, but then again, in Week Three against the Dolphins, he led a he led a late touch he led a late scoring drive and a game-winning drive in overtime. He was terrible against San Francisco, but it's Mark Sanchez. That stuff has happened before, and it will happen again. A regular backup quarterback, not named Tim Tebow, would not cause this much attention. It just wouldn't happen, especially after Sanchez was signed to a contract extension last offseason. With normal teams, a contract extension is a vote of confidence, but I guess not with the New York Jets. And by the way, if you're waiting for a decision to be made with the Jets quarterback position, that will not come until the bye week in week 9. So yippee, we have 4-5 to five more weeks of this. The Kansas City Chiefs are off to another wretched start. They are 1-3. They were blown out 37-20 by the Chargers last week. Big up or slow down. Chiefs general manager and player personnel honcho Scott Pioli's job should be on the line. I say big up here. Romeo Cornell did announce this week that Matt Castle remained the starting quarterback of the team. But man, Castle has not worked out in Kansas City like they thought. Uh, but even bigger than that in the offense's um, consistent ineptitude. Yeah, they scored late against New Orleans. They scored late against San Diego, but they have not had a good half, arguably, all season long. Um, look at the defense. They've surrendered 40 points to Atlanta, 35 points to Buffalo. Yes, the Buffalo Bills. They beat New Orleans, but gave up 24, and they surrendered 37 to San Diego last week. The defense, they're healthy. Eric Berry is back in the secondary, and they've been atrocious, and they haven't made the big plays the whole week. Even Bill Belichick, the most ardent, uh, the most ardent uh, proponent of the 3-4, has morphed to the 4-3, has morphed to a more aggressive front seven, the draft picks of Chandler Jones and Dante Hightower. The whole league has changed and is changing. And the Kansas City Chiefs still don't ever get any consistent pressure on the quarterback. None. They stand back, playing more bend, don't break, and they're breaking. They broke last season, and they're breaking thus far in the first four weeks this season. This was the second consecutive atrocious start the Chiefs have gotten off to. Uh, it's very difficult to recover from a start like this that stretched four weeks an entire month. Uh, so big up. Scott Pioli's job should most certainly be on the line. It most certainly should be looked at. Wrapping things up with our fourth down segment, it is time for the Reamer rant, and I would like to point to an article written by Patrick Garrity, which appeared this week on FootballNation.com, about the NFL being at a crossroads. Patrick Garrity talked about how he was a fan in the 1990s, and then, and I'm quoting here, then bad things started to happen. Bad things. Fantasy football started to take over the country. Casual NFL fans, mudbloods as I called them, suddenly started flooding in from everywhere. It wasn't enough anymore just to know all these things about the NFL. Now it was a competition. You had to win your league. Otherwise, you didn't know as much about football and subsequently were a worse person? At first, it was awesome. A way for me to turn all that useless information into a profit, or at least into bragging rights. Then more bad things happened. The bone-crushing hits that made me fall in love with football started drawing flags. Some of my favorite positions like fullback and then eventually even running backs and linebackers started getting phased out and became less important. Rule modifications allowed already pretty boy QBs to become close to untouchable. And Patrick Garrity is a Bills fan. He wraps up by saying, and the Bills were just, well, they weren't any good. <laughs> Got that right, Patrick. Uh, nice article, a thought-provoking piece. I enjoyed reading it. And I agree with you, man. Fantasy football 
Bad, bad things. Fantasy football, and maybe in a future show I'll expand further on this in the second down segment, but fantasy football is the single worst thing that has happened to the league in terms of the perception of the league, in terms of the perception of players and teams in the league, because fantasy football is exactly that. Fantasy football. It is not real football. Todd Haley had a great line last year as head coach of the Chiefs. One of the few good things he did last season as head coach in Kansas City. Fans were saying that he wasn't running the ball enough. And Todd Haley retorted by saying, I am running the ball enough. We run it 225 times per game. I'm obviously paraphrasing here. It's just the fantasy football nerds who want me to give it to Jamal Charles 35 times. But we're running it more than pretty much any other team in the league. We're fine. We're running the ball enough. Now it's great. I love the fact the NFL head coach took it to the fantasy football dweebs. And that's exactly what they are. Dweebs. Fantasy football is fantasy. What wins in fantasy football doesn't necessarily win in real football. You look at a guy like Ben Roethlisberger. He is not a great fantasy quarterback. But if you had to win a game tonight, right now, if you had to win one game and you could pick a quarterback, wouldn't Ben Roethlisberger be in your top five? He most certainly would be with two Super Bowl titles to his name, nearly a third to his name. Ben Roethlisberger, if he had to win a game tonight, would most certainly be in your top five of quarterbacks to choose from for that game. And in most fantasy drafts, he's not even a top 10 quarterback. The NFL on the field is becoming more like fantasy football. You're right, Patrick. You can't breathe on a quarterback anymore. You can't hit a receiver anymore past five yards. Can't lay out a receiver in the open field, and I actually think that's a good rule. Helmet-to-helmet hits, get them the hell out of the game. With all the information we know of concussions, there's no need for that. But I agree with you, Patrick. We're almost at the point where we got to put flags on them. So, yep, fantasy football, real football, they have coincided to a, for, to a bit. And the air show has given us, I think, a less entertaining product. A 37-34 to 34 game? Eh, I'm sorry. Doesn't really do it for me. I like to watch a football game, a real football game with real strategy besides whoever has the ball last wins. But it's all about the points. Everyone wants to see the points because points result in points for the fantasy team. It is definitely perverted the way we look at the game of real football. You're absolutely right, Pat. You're absolutely right, Patrick. And it's bad. It's bad. The NFL is the most popular it's ever been right now. But is it the best product it's ever been? We've talked about this before, but I would still say no. And I think a lot of that is fantasy football. The league catering to fantasy football. The league catering to what fantasy dweebs want. Points, 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 points. And as I said, it's perverted our perception of the league, and it's perverted our perception of a lot of players in that league. Robert Griffin III is a better fantasy quarterback than Tom Brady. At least thus far this season he has been. And Robert Griffin III for a rookie is having a sensational start. But come on, really? I rest my case. Thank you for tuning in to another edition of the Football Nation Today podcast with yours truly, Alex Reamer. If you have anything to say about the content we discussed in the show today, as always, feel free to leave a thread on the footballnation.com page, uh, the, the, the comment thread on the show page. We appreciate all your comments and input. This show is meant to generate discussion. Hopefully it did so, or at least 
gave you someone to yell out while you're sitting at yell out while you're sitting at work this week. Um, feel free to email me. My email address is areamer at bu.edu. And also, if you feel so inclined, follow me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at alexreamer1. And so long, everybody. Thank you for listening. Enjoy week five of the NFL. We'll be back to talk about it all. Week number two with real referees next Wednesday on the show. So long. Talk then.